0: This is a lot of work. Let me also just say that. Parenting from a conscious place, an intentional place, it's not about doing it perfect, but man, is it a lot of work. It is not easy. It's way easier to just yell and scream, which I have done too. But, and I'll tell you, it is way easier to yell and scream and threaten and go to your room, get out of my face. That is so much easier than really pausing, recognizing why I'm so triggered, why I feel so reactive in this moment. Understanding and connecting with what is happening in my child, building a sense of safety and helping him through it, helping them through it. That's a lot more work.
1: Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and in today's episode, we have Brianna Capodaconal, owner of The Conscious Mommy. Brianna has a master's degree in clinical psychology and has an extensive number of advanced certifications and specializations in perinatal, infant, and early childhood mental health, as well as conscious parenting. Join us as we learn how to combat the pressure of trying to be a perfect parent, the difference between hovering and observing, understanding healthy versus unhealthy attachment, how to help our children face their fears, whether the Ferber method is still relevant, and so much more. Welcome to the podcast, Brianna. I want to really thank you for, for joining us today. We're, we're excited to, uh, to speak with you.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Ryan.
1: So, Brianna, you've got a wealth of, of information to be sharing, so I'm excited to kind of get right into it. Um, but I want to know a little bit about your background as a psychotherapist and how that kind of, I guess, overall kind of in- influences everything that you do and a lot of your coaching that you give to parents. And I'm just kind of curious about how that kind of plays into what you do.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm an infant, early childhood and parental mental health specialist. So for the last 11 years, I've been working exclusively with families and very young children. My own um, upbringing that, you know, I, I often describe as disorganized, chaotic, violent and tumultuous, as well as having a complicated relationship with my own mother is what really, I would say, I think subconsciously guided me into this work with with parents and their children. I could sense within my own self how desperate I felt to have a safe and secure attachment and the way that this influences me on just a day-to-day basis and how I am in practically all of my relationships and my own neuroses, if you will, I think the awareness of that is what really um, invited me to think, gosh, I can't be the only one who is struggling with this. Well, I wonder out in the world what other people might be thinking about this. And that's what led me into working in a therapeutic preschool, which is where I realized, we peg all the problems on children. The problems are not on the children. The problems are on the parents and the parents are who's actually really needing the support. And so that is kind of how that would say that's like the evolution of my history and my background and how I've just kind of unfolded, you know, these, these teachings and these, this wisdom, I would say, just based on, um, my training, but also my, my lived experience, as well as those clinical and professional experiences, working with families that are struggling with their own issues, with their own trauma, their own pain, their own shame. And so I wanna heal relationships and support families in healing their relationships.
1: Now, you mentioned something about um, attachment, and I'm assuming there's various different types of attachment, um, like more, more positive or healthy attach- attachment issues as opposed to um, dysfunctional, I guess. Can you maybe speak to the different types of attachment and how that manifests for parents and kids?
0: Absolutely. So we've got four primary um, types of attachment and this was all researched by um, Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And so the, the secure attachment was the sense of, you know, predictability and consistency. The child felt soothed by the parent, The child felt like there was a sense of attunement and responsiveness enough of the time. And so by the time the child was 12 months, the child had developed this inner sense of, I feel safe in the world. I trust that people will be there for me. I believe that... The world around me is safe and predictable. And so about two thirds of children will grow up with this secure attachment. And then you've got the other three branches of anxious attachment. So you've got the anxious avoidant, the anxious ambivalent, and then you have the disorganized attachment. Um, In terms of the anxious avoidant, these children tended to have parents who dismissed them, rejected them, denied them. And so these children, while they appeared as if they didn't care so much that their parents weren't around, these children's bodies, their nervous systems were actually firing like crazy, um, you know, sending off a ton of stress response in their body. They just had to learn to really stifle it and keep it in. And And these are the the parents who you hear, I don't need other people. These are the parents who struggle to ask for help. These are the parents who don't even believe that others would be there for them, who maybe think I'm off on my own because no one really cares about me anyway. So these are the kids in high school who, you know, if I'm going to do this group project, I'm going to have to do it by myself. No one else can actually support me. That's your avoidant attachment. And then you've got that anxious, ambivalent attachment, which this is your stage five clinger. This is the child who really, really nervous about being separated and then struggles to get soothed when they are actually reunited with that parent. And you know what we saw in, in terms of those dynamics was a parent who sometimes was so available and so connected to the child, and then other times was too flooded, was too overwhelmed, was too reactive to the child. And so the child did not gain a sense of consistency, or I can predict how my parent is going to respond to me, and as a result, developed a sense of anxiety. So these are like, you know, uh, parents who hover over their children, parents who you know, stay really close and, and are very afraid that something bad might happen to their child. And so they try to prevent that from happening or, or parents who, you know, maybe are told you have to hold your baby all day long. Never let them cry ever, ever, ever. So these parents will fall into that trap of, of doing that, which is very poor advice. This is, does not support parental mental health. They will fall into that trap because their own anxiety, their own fear of being abandoned, essentially, is on constant alert, And then the disorganized attachment are usually um, children that come from uh, violence, physical abuse, um, traumatic type homes. And the the research is very interesting on people, children who develop a disorganized attachment. The parents often have an unresolved trauma history themselves. And so you see the disorganized attachment of, you know, the arms are up get away from me. But the, but the words are saying, come close. So when you see them, come close to me. I want you near me. It sends a very disorganizing and confusing message to the parent who is really flooded and really struggles to be able to connect to the underlying needs of this child and struggles to really support this child. So of course, we're aiming toward secure attachment. That's what we want. We want secure attachment. We want people who feel safe in their relationships because we know that this is the foundation for all healthy future relationships. It's the equivalent of building a house with a concrete slab. You build a house with a concrete slab, I don't care what kind of storms come, it's going to be able to weather that storm. You build a house with stri- with sticks and straw, not going to be able to weather the storm. And the storm is going to come. It's inevitable. So we want to build a solid foundation for our children.
1: So tips and for parents that would like to foster a secure attachment in in their kids so what are some ways that they can do that because it sounds like if if they do that um too much too much of the hovering parent or the helicopter parent it seems like it can be the now was it ambivalent or what was the the second term ambivalent attachment
0: yeah Yeah.
1: so so it seems like that could be if you take it too too much of an extreme so what's kind of the right mix then for a parent that's looking to uh, foster a secure attachment in their kids
0: That's brilliant. Brilliant question. So we're looking for somewhere in the middle of overhelping and underhelping. And what that might look like is parents learning the three W's. This is what we call in child parent psychotherapy, the three W's, watch, wait, and wonder. So parents being able to have a sense of the skill to observe the child to notice what's going on with the child, to be curious about what's happening inside the child. And then wait, what does the child do? Does this child reach out to me? Is this child sending a cue? Hey, parent, I need you. Or is this child kind of struggling a little bit on their own? Doesn't really need me, but maybe just kind of needs me on, you know, on standby just in case. And then the beautiful wondering, I wonder what might be going on for my child on the inside, as well as I wonder what might be going on for me on the inside as well. And this is where I think I would re- I want to amplify the conversation is in parental reflective capacity. So what does the research show leads most consistently to a healthy secure attachment? And the answer to that question is the parent's ability to reflect on their past and understand how it influences them in the moment with their child. How does what happened to me in my past, I have to be aware of that. I have to know how does it affect me on a day-to-day basis. And if your answer is it doesn't affect me on a day-to-day basis, then we have more work to do. We have to be aware of- We need to dig deeper. (laughs) Yes, we gotta dig deeper. Our children are relying on us to dig deeper so that they don't have to do it for us. That's the whole concept of breaking cycles.
1: It um, it seems to be a interesting consequence of being pregnant and, and having a child. So I've got my, my little baby boy that's three months old now and the entire process of bringing a child into this world almost forced me, I don't know if it was, I was always a relatively philosophical and introspective type person, but you really start looking at your childhood and you start looking at these um, limiting beliefs that you inherited, these patterns, uh, the programming that you have as a kid that you've been carrying around with you into adulthood. And you start realizing that you are at a pivot point in a very, very tight window to either not pass it on or to pass on the things that you actually do want to pass on to your kids. Um, Is this, Is this just, do you think part of being a parent, is this instinctual or is this maybe only half the parents actually consciously go through it? Um, Like, I guess my question is, is that the level of consciousness in the parent must have a direct correlation to the level of consciousness in a child and their upbringing. Is that a fair statement?
0: I think that's a pretty fair statement. And I also think that consciousness is something that waxes and wanes and I also think it's something that evolves. And there is no doubt that the evolution of one's consciousness being triggered by being thrust into parenthood is an, is a very big, very, very big uh, metamorphosis for, yeah. for, all, for all human beings. How can you not think about your own childhood when you are face to face with your child. And so I often will ask parents like when a parent is, you know, you have a young baby, so we'll use a young baby as an example. When a parent is flooded by a young baby's crying, meaning the parent feels very strong and very reactive. I just have to get this baby to stop crying. This crying is not okay. And now that fixer energy comes in. This is a parent who is trapped somewhere in their own unconscious mind. Because when you're, when you're really just with the baby, crying is okay. Crying is a part of being, being a baby. And it's part of how babies communicate. But in your lifetime, in your upbringing was crying, not okay. How did the adults in your life react to you when you were crying? Did they shame you? Did they scorn you? Did they isolate you? Did they humiliate you? Did they hit you? Did they harm you? Did they nurture you? Did they protect you? What did they do when you were crying? Because that is going to certainly be the pathway that we take, that initial, that instinct reaction that we have toward our own children. So when we have a past where something as simple as our own tears were denied, That's an opportunity for us to heal just through the way that we parent this child.
1: So is it fair to say that the Ferber method has been completely disproven? Like, Is that just like an antiquated, um, just it's been completely debunked or is there still a place for that, um, I guess... I, the watching part of, of the three W's I guess would be a little part of it but um, yeah. for those parents that are a little bit confused with I mean I think it's a little bit more of an older generation that was all about the Ferber method but maybe just speak to that and, and is that so relevant or, or has that evolved or is it completely debunked?
0: So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's debunked um, but what I would say is we're even evolving in our understanding of infant sleep and starting to appreciate biological infant sleep. Babies are not great sleepers. Baby babies require closeness and regular contact with parents on a 24/7 basis, especially in the first 6 to 12 months. The Ferber method and the cry it out method, these Sleep training techniques were really birthed out of necessity. These techniques are reflective of a society that does not take care of new parents. That is why these things have to exist because new parents are not being given the support that they need. The physical hands-on support, the financial support, babies are expensive, as well as just the time to recoup, the time to heal from the birthing process. The time to even just overcome the multiple days and and weeks and months of sleep deprivation. So I, I don't, I'm not like a, I'm not a hater of of sleep training. I do think that there is a conscious way of doing that. I do not believe that babies under the age of 5 or 6 months should be left to just scream and cry for however long on their own. I do not believe that that is healthy or safe or good for a child's nervous system. And I think, you know, as children get a little bit, you know, as they approach that 6 month mark, you know, if we're putting a baby down drowsy but awake and they're starting to kind of wake up a little bit because Let's be honest, that's what babies do when you put them down. They wake up a little and they start to cry. Then you do your watch, wait, and wonder. Are are all the basic needs of my child met? And I'm going to listen into these cries. Is there a code red cry? Baby isn't ready. I'm going to go in. I'm going to help. Is baby a little fussy? Let me give baby a couple minutes. This is that nice balance between over helping and under helping. Let me give baby a couple of minutes to figure it out on their own while I patiently listen. And then, if my baby needs support, I'm going to go in and I'm going to support them and I'm going to support them in a way that soothes them, that regulates them. I don't have to do it the way that the sleep trainers say. I can pick up my baby. I can touch my baby. I can rock my baby. I can feed my baby again. I can do all of those things. And it's perfectly appropriate. And to- eventually, I can promise you, I've got two kids myself. Eventually, they figure it out. And it is just a season that passes. And it's, you know, It it is what it is, but we get so hung up on like ideologies around these things that I actually think does more harm to parents. We can be more supportive of parents by giving them the tools and the knowledge. Like It's okay if your baby cries for a little bit. What happens when you have two and you put the baby down and you got to go get the toddler? The baby might be crying while you're with the toddler. This is life. And parents need to be given permission to like, to live and to be okay with that without guilt. You know what I'm saying?
1: Very much so. On the on the vein of uh, sleeping and um, trying to figure out an effective way, it, there seems to be different schools of thought when it comes to co-sleeping. Um, North America seems to be very much so against co-sleeping. I think it's more for safety type reasons, whereas in mm-hmm. Europe, it's very much so co-sleeping is a big part of the way they raise kids. Now, I'm assuming the answer is somewhere in between, but but what's your thought when it comes to co-sleeping? And, for, and if so, how long is healthy? And maybe you can just speak to co-sleeping a little bit.
0: Here's my thought on it, and I'm not a medical doctor, so I I am aware of what the AAP states. The AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, has specific beliefs on co-sleeping, they don't recommend it. Um, My belief is what gets the child and the family the most sleep, and whatever that is, how do we ensure that it is safe for everybody? So if a family finds that co-sleeping is the safest. Well, then I'm gonna to wanna to make sure that that is a totally safe environment. We don't have down comforters. We don't have big pillows. We don't have sheets. You could use a, you know, dock a of some sort to kind of create a little space for the baby. If you're going to go real safe about it, you're going to take that mattress out of the frame. That mattress is going to be on the floor, so there's no issues with baby potentially rolling off the bed. So there are James McKenna's book, uh, "Sleeping with Your Baby," is a beautiful book that provides evidence-based tips for parents who are choosing co-sleeping. And I would love to see more nuanced conversations you know like don't be drunk in the bed sleeping with your baby don't be high as a kite if you're if you're a smoker you know quit smoking before you sleep in the bed with your baby because smoking in and being a smoker next to a baby is not healthy for their lungs or for their body so work on yourself quit smoking for example but i would really urge parents to read james mckenna's book it's it's a really lovely book
1: that's great. And we'll share a link of that, um, of the book in, in the show description. So thank you for that. Um, something I'm finding refreshing about a lot of what you're talking about is, is that you seem to be putting an equal emphasis on the mental health of the parents and, and supporting the parents as with the children. Um, maybe you could just talk a little bit more about some of the ways that you see parents struggling. Um, some of the ways, that, I mean, you touched on society, not necessarily uh, fostering and encouraging uh, parents to um, be gentle with themselves maybe talk a little bit about when it comes to the parent side of it.
0: Well, what I see in my office every day, parents... Struggling on just a, on a very basic physical level, like li- just not having enough access to resources and physical support. But on that psychological and emotional level, a deep anxiety that they're doing something wrong, like there's a right way to do this, like they're not good enough, like they're somehow failing their, their child just by the choices that they're making or the, you know, the pressure to give children all kinds of opportunities. I had one mom completely distraught in class one day because her kid hadn't been to the aquarium yet. The kid was six months. I was like, you know, a six-month-old in the aquarium, what, what are they even really noticing? You know, that's really more for you. It's not really for the child. That's about you feeling like you're doing something for the child. Your child would be perfectly happy laying out on the grass, looking at the trees. But it's the pressure. It's the pressure to create savant brilliant genius kids who get in the best preschool that sets them on the track to Harvard and they solve all the problems of the world. This is an extreme amount of pressure that I see parents juggling with every single day. And when I say it, doesn't it sound so impractical? Like, why are we struggling with something like this? And then this kind of, I would say, morphs into the other struggles of when well, my kid is having tantrums, my kid is having meltdowns, my kid doesn't listen to me. I don't know how to get them to follow directions. And I just see it all as just people are really burnt out. Our generation is like crispy, like crispy fried bacon toasted, man. Like we are just, (laughs) we've been on the capitalist rat race and we are tired. And I am seeing that come out with parents and how they even perceive themselves and how they perceive their kids.
1: So for that parent that's on the other side of this conversation, who's resonating with what you're saying and and is feeling that pressure cooker, uh, is there any like, actionable tips and tricks that you can give them to help either give themselves permission to find that presence, to um, alleviate some of that pressure?
0: Yes, Um, self-compassion. We need more self-compassion. We need to be focused a lot more on honoring all of our strengths and our weaknesses. Every time I bring this up in group, I will have at least one person say, how do I do that? I don't even know how to honor my weaknesses. We've been so conditioned to see our, the things that we don't do great as if they are pitfalls instead of an opportunity to perhaps give ourselves some grace, love ourselves through it, and then connect in our community with somebody who does do that thing quite well. We are an interconnected species, human beings. We require each other. And the research shows that an elderly individual who is in a nursing home, if this person maintains meaningful connection with people who they love and feel supported, that person will live longer and their decline will be less steep compared to that elderly person who does not have meaningful connections and is in isolation. They decline a lot quicker and they don't have a good end of life. This is, I feel like this is a good metaphor to the nuclear disconnected way that we're all just kind of being thrust into. its It really goes against our humanity. And I think when we're talking about parents, this is such a vital Revelation because we are raising the next generation. We have the opportunity to teach these children how to stay connected and engaged. So that starts with us finding how to be connected and engaged to our communities in a meaningful way. That starts with us being connected and engaged with ourselves in a graceful way instead of a guiltful way. So that we can teach these beautiful children here how to be filled with grace, how to be filled with self-compassion, how to be filled with empathy and connection and a deep desire to want to go out into the world and really make it a better place for everybody.
1: Be- beautifully said, um, poetic and, uh, you know, it definitely resonates um, for those parents that, uh, you know, every parent wants the best for their children. And and oftentimes it, they, they're going to push their children into a certain direction, and they're going to really want that overachiever and, like you said, the fast track to Harvard and the best preschools, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You, you, you talk a lot about deeply accepting ourselves and our children. How, how do how do we balance the desire to maybe push our children into a direction that we wish that we were pushed in with also honoring who they actually are um, and and not, you know, projecting too much of our own faults and trying to live vicariously through them. Like there's a fine balance there that I'm sure must be struck. And and I'm kind of curious to see what, what your thoughts are.
0: I love this question so much because it just resonates so deeply. That feeling of like having to live vicariously through our children and have letting our children be all the things that we, Either never could be, or we're told that we weren't worthy of being. And so we want to put that onto the child and say, Do it, kid. You have the chance. And we think that we're being cheerleaders. You're right, that benevolent intent is there. Our positive intentions are there. But what if instead of asking our child to live out our our unrealized dreams, we actually ask the child, What motivates you? What drives you? How can I support you? How can I encourage you? You know, you see a child who, let's say is struggling with riding a bike. Now we want to we want this child to learn how to ride a bike. Perhaps we're not gonna sit back and be like, well, whatever kid, guess you're not gonna ride a bike. Probably not going to be the most supportive of that child. So what do you think is getting in the way, hun, of you riding this bike? You're feeling scared? What are you afraid of? You're afraid of falling? Falling hurts. What do you think might happen if you fall? So now I'm teaching my child how to take perspective. This is a beautiful way to build motivation is to be able to take perspective and to understand things from multiple angles. Well, I might fall. I might hurt my elbows. I might hurt my knees. Yeah. And then what do you think will happen? Well, I'll get back up. That's right. And then what do you think might happen? Well, I think I could try again. Well, so you are telling me that you could get on this bike and you might fall and you might get hurt and then you might get back up and then you might try again that is what you're telling me could happen and the child says yeah wow that sounds really important I wonder if you might be open to trying that now I've taught my child how to think through the fear and encourage them without pushing my agenda you need to ride a bike we're a bike riding family what are you going to do you're going to stay here at home when we go on our bike rides Right. That's me pushing my agenda as opposed to meeting my kid where they're at, encouraging them, helping them think through their fears, teaching them that that, yes, we can get back up and we can try again. The same thing is true with going to going to college. Maybe you're a Harvard alum and you want your kid to go to to go to Harvard, but maybe your kid is intimidated by that. Maybe your kid didn't get great, good didn't get good grades. Maybe they would prefer to go to a state school. How, how can we live with that? Because that's our problem. That's not the child's problem. That's our problem. I want you to live to your full potential child. And you get to determine what that full potential is. I, as your parent, I am the reflector of what I see in you. And I'm going to just reflect it back. And if a state school is what calls you honey, then you go to that state school. That's me encouraging the child to live out their dreams, not mine
1: at what stage um, i mean there's so much good to unpack there. I'm going to go back to one thing that you said about almost allowing the child to work through the worst case scenario with the bike riding example. And that seems very stoic in in the approach where um, I know in stoicism, they talk about whatever it is that you might be afraid of is to really put yourself in that worst case scenario. If it's in your imagination, great. If it's physically even better to really realize that you're going to be okay at the end of it, that it's, it's not the end of life. In most cases, it's just, you're, you're going to be okay. So that example that you described there, seemed just poetic and beautiful in the way that it would allow that child to be okay with whatever that worst case scenario is, it, it kind of shines a flashlight on the boogeyman to realize it's not so bad um, mm-hmm. and then face their fear and then act anyway, which obviously as adults is is paramount to, to being a productive adult. So it's, it's really beautiful in in that tip for, for, for the listeners to kind of take away. Thanks. Now, while you're watching this, y- you talk about a difference between hovering, being a hovering parent and observing your child. And, you know, it's, uh, again, like anything, uh, it's a fine line. So maybe you can touch on the difference between, you know, hovering and observing.
0: Yes. So um, it's so great. I just had this conversation today in my class. The way that I view hovering is I am essentially on top of the child, controlling the child's actions and preventing the child from having to suffer any pain or any problem. Whereas I almost look at that kind of fine middle line as I'm watching, I'm being curious about the child, if it's a young child and I can tell they might be taking risks that they're not quite ready for. I might be within arm's reach, almost think like, I'm here to catch you if you fall. That's the the watcher, that's the observer, that's the wonderer. Whereas the hoverer is, I will make sure you don't fall. You see the difference?
1: Very much so. Yeah.
0: I want to be, I will catch you when you fall. That is the type of, that's what I see as effective parenting. I am here to catch you when you fall. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to blame you or shame you or tell you you were bad or tell you what an F up you are. I'm not here to harm you when you fall. I'm also not here to prevent you from falling. And I want parents to really embrace that.
1: So oftentimes parents may be inclined to want to, I don't want to say this is discipline, but, but everything you said where it was like shame the child or, um, you know, reprimand them in some way, what would be a more proactive or a healthy approach to um, that instinct from a parent um, instead of doing something that might be a little bit harmful or deconstructive um, for the child?
0: Yeah, well, um, it's going to definitely be uh, situation dependent, but what I recommend parents do is uh, lead with some kind of connection and a boundary. I know you really want my attention. I can't let you hit. So we're going to teach the child about what's going on on the inside. Here's what I recognize as motivating your behavior, and here's the boundary around how we might express that. And then for younger children, I'm either for really young children, I'm going to either just redirect them or give them a couple choices. For like preschoolers and kindergartners, I might say, show me another way. Show me your feelings in a different way, please. Right? Give them an opportunity to try again. This is so vital. It is just vital. I cannot express it enough when we give our children opportunities to try again, to go through whatever the problem was and to try these skills again. Oh my goodness, we see capable kids. We see see kids, we see their goodness. We see that they don't actually want to be messing up and making us angry and pushing our buttons like we're all made to believe a child exists to do. They do not exist to do that. They're really just learning. So I look at discipline as the opportunity to connect and teach.
1: Beautiful. Like I've seen it in adults where it, and obviously this seems to, to come from a childhood where if something doesn't quite work out the first time, they completely shut down. Um, And there is no try again. And it seems like one of the healthy byproducts of what you're suggesting is is that they learn that if the first approach isn't the right approach or it doesn't get the right result or the result that they're looking for, that it's okay to try again and continue to try again. And if that's instilled at a very young age, that creates that little bit of grit and perseverance in, in an adult, which really seems to be one of the biggest correlations or indicators of success is those adults and those kids that can just persevere, that can push through and and continue on without getting completely dejected and and giving up.
0: Right. Yes. It's just, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I can even think of my own, my own life, you know, never having really that that sense of safety to keep trying. So unless I'm really, really, really good at something right away, I don't usually make myself vulnerable and keep trying. I've had to learn that skill as as an adult, because that skill was not nurtured for me in childhood. And honestly, I would say I still have wounds around that. As a parent, now let's turn this into a lesson. As a parent, I'm gonna have to be really, really mindful of that, because that might make me project something onto my child that doesn't actually suit my child. Maybe my child tries something once and he struggles. My itch might be, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, we'll do something different right? But my more mature, more conscious self is going to say, what went wrong with that? What do you think was so hard about that for you? Gosh, is there anything, if you could do it again, is there anything that you think you might do differently? These are conversations I have with my four-year-old. I'm not having, I'm not waiting until eight, nine, 10 to have these conversations. I have these discussions with my, with my preschooler and he gives me eloquent responses. Truly. He's very articulate. And I think it's, honestly, I I kind of pat myself on the back a little bit sometimes because this is a lot of work. Let me also just say that parenting from a conscious place, an intentional place, it's not about doing it perfect, but man, is it a lot of work. It is not easy. It's way easier to just yell and scream, which I have done too. But, and I'll tell you, it is way easier to yell and scream and threaten and go to your room, get out of my face. That is so much easier than really pausing, recognizing why I'm so triggered, why I feel so reactive in this moment, understanding and connecting with what is happening in my child, building a sense of safety and helping him through it, helping them through it. That's a lot more work.
1: I can hear a lot of parents on the other side of this being like, that is wonderful, and, and I feel like I can do that quite a bit, but there are times when I'm stressed, I'm tired, um, my attention is being pulled in a hundred different directions. Do you have any tips on kind of bringing yourself back to that mindful, that present place where you can actually be intentional and conscious about being a parent when you when you lose yourself a little bit or when you become a little bit unconscious?
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, this is where that self-compassion and that grace comes in, Forgive
1: yourself. (laughs) you
0: got to be kind. You're going to do it. It's normal. It's part of the process. No one is expected to be a Disney princess with their children. So cut that fantasy. That is not who you are. That's not who you're ever going to be. But what if I, in the moment, become aware, oh, my God, I do not like the way I am behaving. Mommy needs a timeout. Daddy needs a minute. Call it out. Tell that to your baby. Tell that to your young child. They will learn. They will actually learn how to give themselves a little bit of a timeout or a little break of some sort. I'm going to feel my feet on the floor. I'm going to feel my breath in my body. I'm going to relax my shoulders. Maybe I'm going to get a drink of water. Maybe I'm going to go take a walk around the block if it's possible if I have to, I might go scream in a pillow. I'm, I'm very keen to dance parties. Maybe I'll just put on some good Lizzo. Lizzo always lifts my spirits. Lizzo's amazing. So maybe (laughs) I'll put on some good music to move my body, get myself back into my body. And then guess what I do? I try again. And I tell my kid that I didn't like the way I was behaving. I want to try it again. Here's what I need from you. And I go right, I go right into connecting and teaching and guiding for the child.
1: Wonderful. Um, Beautifully said. You you talked about guiding and there seems to be a difference um, in in your terminology and and what you talk about between shaming uh, your your kids and guiding your kids. Can you talk a little bit about what that difference might be?
0: Yeah. Well, shaming is going to be, um, you know, reacting to the child in a way That promotes a sense of inner badness, which makes the child feel afraid in a way and forces them to diminish parts of themselves or abandon parts of themselves in order to be pleasing to you, in order to be more palatable to you. So it's really shame is is very effective in shutting down people and shutting children down and forcing them to comply in a way uh, where I look at guiding as an opportunity to really be diplomatic about it. And to collaborate with a child. So I don't believe in the hierarchical systems and the hierarchical structures of um, families the way that we've been told. So I don't believe like parents are on the top and children are these inferior beings beneath the parents who need to listen to everything. Like you are my my tiny God parents and I'm going to listen to every single thing that you say. I don't um, I don't agree with that um, because I don't believe that really honors the whole soul and the whole being and the whole essence of the child. Children have just as much to teach us as we have to teach them. So I look at the relationships as more horizontal. And we are a team and we're all working together. And every single person on the team has their role. Now, is my child going to be the primary decision maker? Probably not. I'm probably going to be the primary decision maker because I have a fully developed brain. I have the capacity to think things through and I can make full decisions. Is my child's thoughts, feelings, and opinions of equal value to my own? Yeah. They are. I will pause and I will listen. Here's the plan. We're going to go out today. We have the option to go to the park or to the aquarium. What would you like to do? Child A. Child B. Which would you like to do? If you have more children, ask every child. Okay, I've heard everybody's opinion, and here's what I think is the plan. We're going to do the aquarium, and then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to go to Nana's house, and then maybe tomorrow we'll head up the park. Now I've taken into account everybody's opinions, everybody's feelings, everybody's needs, but I've had to kind of exercise my role as decision maker. I think that this is a really valuable mindset shift for parents to see their children as collaborative partners, as opposed to inferior um, beings that just need to do what I say because I said so.
1: It uh, makes a lot of sense. It's what about a situation where the child maybe isn't being the best partner, isn't, isn't being the best um, mm-hmm. little little human being that, that's on an equal level. Um, maybe they're acting out, maybe they're, they're throwing a tantrum, or maybe they're being disrespectful or, or talking back. Uh, what would you suggest is a good way to handle that for a parent?
0: Excellent. So if a child is, you know, not wanting to, wanting to work together, there's a reason for it. So as the parent, your job is to not make the child comply. That's only going to set you up for further power struggle. If your first job, if you can make your first job to understand what's driving this behavior for the child. So I'll usually say, whoa, slow down. Something big is happening right now. I said it was time to do X, and now your body is seeming really angry, or your words are showing me that you don't like that. Tell me what's happening inside of you.
1: Go ahead. And you're purposefully disassociating the behavior from the actual human, the behavior from them. So your words, your body is acting angry.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's a, that's an intentional um, shift that I like to teach parents because the moment you make it about the child, children are very black and white. So the moment that you make it about the child, they embody it as, well, I am bad. I am an angry kid. I'm I'm an acting out kid that my parent doesn't want anything to do with me. So they'll start to kind of make these conclusions. Am I good or am I bad? Whereas if we can start talking to children about their behaviors and that there's something underneath it, that's really driving it. It's no longer about, are you good or are you bad? Because of course we're all good. Of course, the core, the core of humanity, even though it may be hard to see it on a day-to-day basis, but the core of humanity is good. We are driven to be good. We want good. We want the greater good. And we want to be really, really conscious to not accidentally erase that or make that complicated for the child in these early years where they are really wrestling with that question. Am I good or am I bad? And talking about words and bodies and kind of distancing is a great tip to do that
1: yeah I don't think any parent at least consciously wants to give their kid a complex, but it seems like it's pretty easy to do so if you're if you're not conscious and and aware of what you're doing, yeah, so as a parent, it seems like we all have a collective desire to to raise great kids, to raise great adults, great human beings. What does that mean to you to to have a great kid and 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 how would you go about preparing them for the real world if that's even necessary? um what are your thoughts on, on, on what that looks like to have a great kid and, and to be a great parent?
0: I love this question so much. makes me teary-eyed. What I consider to be a great parent is someone who is really aware of who they are and why they are and does, and, and makes their best effort not a perfect effort, their best effort to get out of their child's way. Our kids are gonna inevitably, you know, come into adulthood with some kind of baggage. And my hope is that that baggage is not yours. (laughs) And my my, my, my idea of a great child is one who is socially conscious, one who has a sense of social and emotional intelligence, So not somebody who is so stuck in their own selves, their own entitled sense of, you know, their own greed, their own, you know, neuroses, but one who does uh, does care for themselves while also looking outward and asking, how can I care more for the world around me? And that I mean that in every sense of the word, not just the people, but also this world around us. And I really see a great child as somebody who has that deep sense of, of care. Now, what I think, what I, what, I, what I like to talk also to parents about is for us to not be afraid of being ordinary. That there is greatness in being ordinary. You don't have to be the best of the best and the most special and the most unique. You can be perfectly ordinary and still be great because you're aware of yourself. You're conscious of the thoughts, feelings, and needs of others. You make yourself available to be an active part of your community. Let's not be afraid of, of being ordinary. Ordinary is great too.
1: I suppose it it almost begs the question of of what the point of life actually is. And and if one believes that, you know, the point of life is to, you know, learn the lessons and to become the best version of yourself and, and, and to become as aware and conscious as possible then it really does seem like every situation provides that ability to you know find that greatness in yourself and and to find that ability to grow yourself as a human being um, in in any situation one thing i really want to touch on though which i thought was just genius what you said which was no matter what your child is going to enter into adulthood with baggage and it really seems to be that you're hoping your kid's going to have a carry-on, maybe a laptop bag or a purse, as opposed to a bunch of check bags and you know paying for extra bags and all the rest of that. And it right. kind of it's nice to know that no matter what, no kid's going to be perfect, no parents perfect, but you're really just trying to reduce. You know, you want that kid to kind of breeze through the airport with just a check bag or with a carry-on instead of a check bag. And I think that's kind of
0: right. funny. You go, you go to the go to the, the belt and you weigh it, and they're like, "Oh, this is too heavy," and then you're taking too, yeah. too heavy, yeah. And they start, well, this is mom's and that's dad's and grandma's thing doing in here. And they start throwing all the things out. None of my own stuff is in here. I have to go back home and get all my own crap before I can board the board the, the, the plane of adulthood. Um, yeah. fun.
1: The plane of adulthood. There, There you go. That's that's a book title right there. I love yeah. that. Brian, you've been you've been absolutely wonderful. Um, Thank you. So if 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 people want to um, get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about, um, you know, some of your programs and your coaching, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: So, um, to learn more about my, my workshops and my classes, please go to learning.consciousmommy.com. And um, if you want some free resources and some extra support, you can sign up for my newsletter. You could also follow me on Instagram and TikTok, And both of those are at conscious mommy. And, uh, just for general information, consciousmommy.com is how you find me. And I really look forward to connecting to the folks in your audience. And I've really enjoyed this conversation with you too, Ryan. So thank Thank you very much for having me,
1: Brian, It's been an absolute pleasure. You you shared so much of uh, wisdom, and uh, yeah, I, I think the if a listener didn't get at least uh, ten to twenty actionable like tips out of this, I, I think they need to re-listen to it because it, it was absolutely wonderful. So thanks so much for for coming on, and uh, we hope to talk to you again.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Welcome to Raising Greatness, where we ask the questions every parent wants to know. I'm Ryan Adams, and in today's episode, we have Brianna Cappodaconal, owner of The Conscious Mommy. Brianna has a master's degree in clinical psychology and has an extensive number of advanced certifications and specializations in perinatal, infant, and early childhood mental health, as well as conscious parenting. Join us as we learn how to combat the pressure of trying to be a perfect parent the difference between hovering and observing, understanding healthy versus unhealthy attachment, how to help our children face our fears, whether the Ferber Method is still relevant, and so much more.